Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I have Dr. Elliot West on the show. Dr. West received his BA from the University of Texas and his PhD from the University of Colorado. He joined the University of Arkansas faculty in 1979. Two of his books, Growing Up With Country and The Way West, received the Western Heritage Award. The Contested Plains, Indians, Gold Seekers, and the Rush to Colorado received five awards, including the Francis Parkin Prize and the Penn Center Award. His most recent book is Continental Reckoning, which might be my favorite large survey of Western history in print. Please enjoy our conversation. Dr. West, how has the concept of the West in quotation marks, within the North American context changed over the course of your career? Oh, gosh, so much in in many ways. You know, it's kind of a moving target. With the old Ternarian interpretation, of course, view of it, it was was literally a moving target. It was was a line of, you know, that moves from east to west. But my thinking of it is is the West is a place. And the question then becomes, where where exactly is it? I use the, uh, basically, the approach started basically of Walter Webb's, but then refined by others like Richard White. I see it as defined geographically. Uh, for me, it's basically west of the Missouri River to, to the Pacific Coast. <clears throat> but within that, within that difficult distinctiveness, it's a history. It's the story of the West that defines that defines the place. So it's a it's a definition that changes over time. To, to me, it's one of the fascinating parts about the West is, in my own mind, in my own thinking, it, it continues to change, continues to evolve. And that it includes my thinking of it in this recent research in this book that I've come out with. And people's concepts of the West can differ from the geographical parameters. How, how, how do you think they differ both then and now? Well, it depends, I suppose, on where you live. For people outside of the West, and that, that includes not just in the United States, but across the world, but the West is this sort of uh, this, this playground of the imagination. It, it is what you want it to be. It's what, it's what you need it to be, especially in this country. The West has been a kind of a projecting ground. It's like a movie screen in which people have, have projected their, their aspirations and their anxieties and their fears and what they hope this country hope this country might be. Within the West, it depends, I think, a lot on a lot on where you live and who you are. The West, from the time that I study it in the late 19th century until today, is the most ethnically and culturally diverse part of the country. So if your name is Martinez and you're from Arizona. Or if your name is a lone bear and you're from Montana, or if your name is Smith or Jones and you're from Nevada, then your view of the West and what it promises to you naturally is quite different. Can you kind of flesh out some of or what you think are the key differences between popular conceptions of the West that we get in movies or films and the academic discipline around what the West is? What what do you think are the key areas of, of departure? Well, certainly the the, the mythic view. It's a place of rugged individualism. It's a place of great continuing opportunity. It's a place of physical grandeur. All all of that. Some of that's true. I think we should we should honor those concepts because they are based to a, to a point in reality. Academics have come to think of it that their idea of the West, of course, has changed over time as well. Certainly during my career, increasingly, it's the view of the West is one of class differences. Uh, it's one of not just ethnic diversity, but of ethnic pecking order of, of different racial orders, racial and, and ethnic ethnic orders. It's one of increasing attention to transnationalism, how the West is really connected both to the West and to the South and to the into Canada and Mexico, but also westward into the, into the Pacific. 
this place that we cannot understand strictly in terms of national national boundaries. Okay. And I, I often get into the prognostication game because I think it's fun. You just recently retired, but we're very much in the world of studies of the West. Where, where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? One of the things I've come to believe as a historian is that historians are absolutely the worst prognosticators, predictors of <laughs> whether we're talking about their own discipline or, or talking about their, their, their own their society and their, and their country. I'm not entirely sure. What is most heartening to me, Jordan, is the fact that, it, that the West, that Western history, Western historical studies are increasingly hard but to pigeonhole. If you look at what, to me, are the most, the most interesting books of the last generation or so, you can't really say whether they are Western history or whether they are cultural history or whether they're economic history or whether they are any number of other areas. And if you look at the books in Western history that have won the awards, I think that is certainly increasingly true of that. To me, to me, that's, that's very heartening. Hmm. Well, let's, let's pivot to talking about one of your earlier books, Contested Plains. I have mm-hmm. a few questions about that. What makes the Great Plains distinctive as an environment? As an environment, yeah. well, it is, for, for one thing, one of the two great pasture lands on Earth. The largest, of course, is that in, in, uh, in Central Asia. That makes it different. It is also different because it is geographically different in terms of its semi-aridity to It is one, to, to me, in writing the contested plains, what, uh, what struck me is how the Great Plains has been over time, and you can chase this a long way back, a, a this, this place where people suddenly can can believe they can do anything. It's just, it's just place of something about, it. maybe it's the openness of it, Jordan. Maybe it's the, I don't know how much time you yourself have, have spent out there, but it's just this, it inspires this sense of, of possibility. And what I wrote about in Contested Plains is the collision of two of those great dreams, two of those great leaps of imagination. On the one hand, it was the Cheyenne people, Indian peoples of the plain, once they acquired the horse, this place that was one of the great grasslands on earth you know, became a, a place that they thought where they could achieve this extraordinary new life. And they did. And they did for a while. They also found, of course, the limitations of that. And then that view, that dream, that, that just sort of dreamscape collided with that of uh, this, this, this white invasion that came in, this second wave, which saw that in very, in very different terms. And the lesson was, and they, of course, over time have found their own limitations to it. Uh-huh. But what you see here is this, uh, it's really a universal story. I think you can find that any place you study in, in world history. But here it is played out in this uh, this remarkable terrain of the Great Plains, where it seems to me, it seemed to me just to somehow even more vividly, vividly, vividly displayed. Hmm. So if, if you were taking stock of the relationship between the Cheyenne, for example, and the horse, would you say that in in acquiring the horse and making a central part of their society that spelled their demise in some capacity? Or do you think the horse overall, if you take stock, is is an advantage that was given to them that did not relate to their demise? No, I think it I think it was a, a second. I think it was a, a something of great opportunity. When they when they came out of the plains, they Suddenly, you know, rose to this extraordinary, this rose, this 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 arc toward a great power and affluence that they had never dreamt of before. All that was real. All that was real. What they began to discover was that whenever you make those kinds of changes, there are going to be drawbacks. There are going to be the need for adjustment to it. I think the the, the really fascinating question to me is what would they 
what would we have seen if there had not been this second dreamscape, this second movement of whites onto the, onto the Great Plains? How well, how would they have just adjusted? I think they would have, frankly. The key to understanding American Indian history, Native American history, I think, is adjustment, is adaptability. They're, they're geniuses at that. And I think that would have, they would have, they would have uh, been able to, to adapt to this place and to figure out how to, how to take advantage of it and yet deal with this, deal with this deficiencies. But of course, that did not happen. One of the influential writers that's kind of shaped my imagination of these indigenous groups on the plains is Pekka Hamalainen, who just came out with a book also with the continent in the title. Where would you say your kind of points of agreement and disagreement are with him in terms of how he visualizes indigenous people on the plains? Well, a, a first, first of all, a, a caveat. Pekka is in the guild, the historical guild. Pekka is one of my very, very best friends. So um, it's somewhat colored by that. Yeah. In general, Peck and, I, Peck and I agree far more than we disagree. What he saw, of course, looking at whether the Comanches uh, in his first book or in the Lakota and Lakota Empire, Lakota America in the second book, is the creation of these native em- empires uh, on the plains. That's what I see happening. That's what I see happening with the with the Cheyennes. Something something like that. Their their story is really parallel to those uh, to those other two. Where Peck and I disagree, and we've had some wonderful. Um, Let's say discussions <laughs> over over beers, or he disagrees, if you, and you see this certainly in his recent book that you that you mentioned, Indigenous Continent, is that this that this native agency continued late into the 19th century. Well, they they really continued to have this possibility of keeping this way of life. That's where we part, in my opinion. By the time the whites show up, it was very it's very difficult for me to see how. The Comanches or the Lakotas or the Cheyennes could have could have retained their independence on the, on the terms that they that they wanted that they wanted to live. I can't see how it could have happened. Instead, what you see happening is once again their adaptability. They lose their independence, outward independence, in terms of military independence, in terms of their political independence. What they do is is adjust to that by, by retaining their cultural. Life by adjusting by adjusting to life on the reservations. It's a real, really quite remarkable new book by my student Justin Gage. It goes into how they how they did that on the reservations. Hmm. Uh, Pekka and I disagree on, on that point, but on most of the rest, most of the West, we agree. He's a brilliant, a brilliant historian. So this book was published a while ago, I think twenty four years ago, and. One of the things I notice is there's an emphasis on the environment in the book. If you were to rewrite it today, would conquest feature more prominently in the book as the as the the cause for the demise of the Cheyenne, or would you keep it the same? I think I would keep it basically the same. But but you're right, and I have gotten some pushback on that. Very good, uh, honest, fair pushback on the fact that I did not see this more as that I saw it more as a sort of an equal contest between these or, or an equal story between the whites and the Cheyenne. I think I would keep it I think it would keep it essentially the same. Uh, uh, as I said a moment ago, I think this is basically a, a universal story. It's a story of people pursuing their aspirations and yet and, and sometimes sometimes finding them you know, in these dramatic ways. But also inevitably finding the limitations to them and yearning, uh, learning to learning to live to live within starting with the, starting with the environment. Yeah. 
Got it. I'm I'm going to pivot to your another one of your books, which I really love, The Essential West. I love I love collections of essays. I, I really think it's a fun medium for historians to write in, and I think it it's uh, the bite sized chunk element of it is is something that I enjoy. Can mm-hmm. you can we start by talking about why you chose to emphasize those three domatic three thematic domains in particular? Oh yeah, those of uh, conquest, family, and myth. Yes. Well, to start with, my my colleagues and my family would be the first to tell you that I have sort of a short attention span. <laughs> I've been I've been at this game now for a half a century, and my I tend to shift my interest and my and my and my curiosity, especially when I'm provoked by my my fellow historians who come up with new ideas. So I started out really in in social history. My Earliest book was on the saloons on the, on, the, on the Rocky Mountain mining frontier. I wrote a book on children on the frontier. I was most interested in, in sort of the daily life of people, how people, as with us, sort of muddle through the putting one in front of the other, and how they cope with these, these extraordinary circumstances they found themselves in the early in the early West. In fact, contested plains began. I began working on that book, intending to write a social history of the Colorado Gold Rush. I love school in Colorado. I loved Colorado, and I thought that was a great, great fun to, to concentrate on the mining towns and write a social history of it. And then just about that time, you see this you see this flowering of, of, of environmental history, you see this, this extraordinary work by people like Don Worcester and, and Richard White and Bill Cronin and others. So I got sort of caught up in that. I had a fellowship. I was lucky to get a fellowship for a year at the Newberry Library, and I used that year to investigate, to, to turn to environmental history. And I with that, I thought, well, gosh, the real story here is not in the Rockies; it's in, it's out on the plains. <laughs> so I, so I, I turned to that. So, in other words, the, the, this this first one on on especially the one on family that reflects my early interest in early interest in, in in social history, and with environmental history, I became that sort of a key to conquest, of course, and to the various aspects of that. I also became increasingly interested in Native American history. So that led to the. If you look chronologically at the hit when those when those articles are published, when those essays are published, you'll see I think that that falls in that middle period. And then from the beginning, from the beginning, I was always been fascinated with the West of popular culture, how how people in the United States and across the world have, have have seen the West, how they have mm-hmm. how they have uh, used in their in their in their own imaginations and their in their own hopes. And so thus uh, the third. The third category, the third category of myth. Yeah, and I want to latch on to that last category and talk about chapter thirteen in the book, which the title of that chapter is "On the Trail with Gus and Call: The Lonesome Dove and mm-hmm. the Western Myth." Mm-hmm. Do we need more Blood Meridian and Deadwood and less Yellowstone and Tombstone? <laughs> I think I think we do. I think we do. First of all, because Deadwood is far better than Yellowstone, <laughs> as, a, just as, a, as a as a television. Shakespeare show. versus I, the soap opera, right? Well, that's right. That's right. I teach a course. I've taught, gosh, forty years now, more than forty years. A course called "The West of the Imagination," which is a course on the myth of the West, really. And I watch very little television, but students kept coming up to me and saying, "Have you seen Deadwood? What do you think of Deadwood?" <laughs> well, I don't know. I'll, okay, I'll watch it. So I. I watched a couple of episodes and was frankly turned off by the vulgarity of the language. And then I, I was out in, in California at a fellowship at the, at the Huntington Library for a year. So I thought, okay, I'll look. So I bought the rented the DVDs and watched it. And about about three episodes into it, I couldn't stop watching it. It was, it was a wonderful show, a fab, fabulous view of the West. In, in many ways, more accurate in its portrayal than than 
in most of these uh, series, despite the language. So, yeah, I think we need I think we need more of that. I think we need a, a tougher view of it. I think we need to we, we need more shows that show the kinds of themes that historians now are emphasizing about the West, a sort of, a, of class division, of the, the role of big business, the role of outside influences on the West so that you that you never see in shows like Yellowstone. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the shows like Yellowstone or Tombstone or Lonesome Dove, it's it's still holding on to that Frederick Jackson Turner view of the world, and it's it's like it missed a hundred years of scholarship about the West, but that's still <laughs> what colors a lot of those dime novels and yeah. stories is that kind of mythical what you're describing as like civilizing an an untamed world. Yeah. That's true. I think we might as well just sort of throw up our hands and accept it. I don't think that's never going to change. It's, yeah. uh, but one caveat here, you, you threw Lonesome Dove into that category, and it's certainly that's true. It is certainly true. But I, I love that book, and I love the uh, love the television series. I think the essay, what I tried to emphasize in the essay is, that sure, sure, it has all kinds of flaws and misconceptions of history, but it's a, it's just a, it just pulls at your heart. And of course, McVertry is a, one of the the great writers of the American West. Let's pivot to talking about the greater reconstruction, something that I'm kind of learning about myself and it, it, it provokes a lot of trains of thought and something that's come up recently when I've talked to scholars like Glenna Matthews. So when I first read kind of this articulation of the greater reconstruction starting in 1845, I mm-hmm. will say that I was kind of confused initially, and my knee-jerk reaction was that it kind of makes the Reconstruction lose some kind of concreteness. Can you explain why the expansion of the term doesn't just make the term kind of too big and saying everything and nothing at the same time? <laughs> I call that the spandex phenomenon. There are certain <laughs> terms like like Reconstruction. You can stretch it so far, they're just like, what do they mean anymore? Right? Yeah, yeah. I've thought... Oh, since I started using that term, I've thought many times about whether I should have used it. I still think it's—I still think it's valid. What I'm—what I'm doing is hoping that people will ask exactly the kind of question that you are. What exactly are you saying with that? What are you saying with that? And what I'm trying to get across is, this is the basic idea: that in the roughly the middle part of the 19th century, the historical trajectory of the United States of our national narrative takes this shift. you know, It's always changing, of course, but it moves into a new direction that takes us into what we think of today as modern America, right? Well, how, how does that happen? And, and why does it happen? Well, part of it, of course, obviously, the American Civil War, and that's the usual suspect in this. That's the usual explanation for it. What I'm arguing here is that the, Ameri- the birth of the American West and the, the consequences that followed and the timing of it was equally important with the American Civil War. And together, together, these two great episodes of the mid-19th century, the birth of the West, the American Civil War, together, they help us understand more than more than anything else why this shift happens. So what I'm used by, by using reconstruction, what I'm saying is this nation was literally, was literally remade, remade. And it starts with the most basic definition of reconstruction you can think of as geographical well, increase our size by about one third <laughs> yeah and then comes this extraordinary coincidence of the, of the Colorado of the discovery of gold in Colorado that, that 
it combines with expansion to create these series of very, very, very rapid changes out west. And it's that it's it's those events going on in the West, starting with physical reconstruction, leading to economic reconstruction, leading to environmental reconstruction, to remaking economic reconstruction. Uh, the Civil War is doing it too, and the events around the Civil War are doing it too. But when you add those two things together, I think you will you will have a far better, far clearer understanding of how the course of American history shifted in a very important and dramatic way toward the America that we that we know today. By using that term in that way, it really helps to explain how interrelated Western expansion and the Civil War were, and it creates mm-hmm. this wonderful interpretive lens to see the 19th century in that way. I, I would love it yeah. if you could use or give listeners the kind of analogy used about a home as a metaphor for, for that. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, what I used was my wife and I recently, very painfully and expensively, <laughs> remodeled our kitchen and our, and our, and our den and our family room. Well, it changed the very nature of our house. We added something on. The very meaning of different rooms changed. The relationship of our family within this house changed. And so that's the kind of I think kind of thinking I think we should have about what this what expansion did. It it it, it remodeled America. It remade America in that in that sense. Another another metaphor I think that to me is is I think is also helpful. Do you remember, you know, if you're a certain age, you grew up with what were called uh, stereopticons. Do you remember those? No. Handheld stereopticon. It was this thing. There was this eyepiece that you would fit over over your eyes, and there was this wo- short wooden extension that went out in front of it, and a little metal bracket at the end. And into that bracket, you would put a card, and this card had two images on it. The images were of the same thing, but they were fuzzy. They were out of shape, uh, out out of focus. The eyepiece had these two lenses in it. So that when you put the card in the bracket and you looked through those lenses, this these two fuzzy images fused into one. It was sharp, it was clear, in three dimensions. So what I'm suggesting is that when you, we take these two episodes, the war, Western expansion, they're both out of focus by themselves, but you put them together and you see this far sharper, clearer, deeper understanding of the kinds of changes that were going on going on during those years. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect transition to talk about your latest book, because if it was taking two things in that book, in your latest book, you're taking 65 things and bringing them all together <laughs> to make them clear. Can you can you just briefly share um, your intent in, in writing this most recent book? What were you trying to do? Okay. Well, the book, of course, is part of a series, a History of the West a series from the University of Nebraska Press, edited by my old dear friend, Dick Edelig, Richard Edelig. So the, the, the ostensible purpose, you know, when I signed the contract, it was to write a, a history of the West during this period of, of the formation of what we think of, what we think of as the West. So that's the first purpose. It's just simply to tell the story of the emergence of this of this region that we and the rest of the world think of as the West. It's an extraordinary story itself, just taken on its own terms. Partly, it's, it's remarkable because of the rapidity with which it, with the, the changes come. Partly because it comes in coincidence with 
cyclic revolution, this what I call the movement revolution, the greatest changes, the most rapid changes in the, in the movement of people and things and information in the history of the world up until that time, partly as a, a coincidence of, of the United States' increasing involvement with the, re- with the rest of the world, economically and culturally. So it's its own story. It's this period, of course, that includes the, that, that includes so many of those episodes that that, that the, wor- the world thinks of, identifies with the West, you know, overland migrations, Indian wars, mining rushes, transcontinental railroad, homesteading, ranching, and cowboys, and so forth. But it's also a time that has so much happening that we that we don't normally recognize. I was particularly struck with the role of the West in, in global science and scientific advances during these years. So the first goal of the book, the first purpose of the book, was to tell this story. When we talk about the birth of the West, when we talk about the American West and its emergence, what was happening? Why was it happening? How was it happening? That was the first, the main goal. But I became increasingly convinced at the point I'm, I made, trying to make just, just a moment ago, that is, you cannot you cannot understand the larger changes going on in American history. Specifically, you cannot understand how the United States of the mid-19th century became the United States of the 20th and the 21st century without taking that into consideration. You just won't understand it. You won't. So I've tried to weave those, to, to, you know, to, to, to blend those two things together, those two themes together. And it was a tough job of work. You know, a lot happened. <laughs> yeah. How and long so did it take took, you to write this book? To write it? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. 10, 12 years. Yeah. Researching it goes back 20, 25 years, but writing it probably 10 years, a little more than 10 years. Well, I have to say it's a wonderful tapestry. And I think it's one of those books that are they're helpful in kind of giving people a broad picture, kind of like some of Alan Taylor's recent books, yeah. where you kind of get a big overview to kind of give you a conceptual framework to how to look at things. Although yeah. this is a history of California podcast, so we do need to zero in on California a little bit. And there's okay. a few few subtopics in your book that I want to talk about. But before we go further, though, one more kind of prologue element here. What what does reckoning mean? Reckoning? Yeah. Well, coming with somebody coming to grips with, okay. to, you know, how we, how we, it's actually two meanings, Jordan. The, f- the first meaning is how this nation had to, had to adapt to, had to adjust to, had to come to grips with the fact that we were now a bioceanic, truly transcontinental nation. The second meaning, sort of the, the subtler meaning, is that how we all have to come to understand, to look back on the history of this period and think of it as continental, you know. We've got to so, so much of the history, so, so much of the focus of the Civil War, frankly. And, and let me be clear: it's difficult to overestimate the impact of the Civil War and its consequences. But this that is so mesmerized American historians that it's as if they're looking at this map of the United States historically in this period, you know, and and put, you know putting their hand over their left eye, you're just seeing only that. That part of it. What I'm suggesting here, no, we need to think of it as a nation that is now stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and all that that and all of that is involved. Yeah, it's certainly with California playing a critical role in that. Yeah, let's let's jump into the gold rush. That's there's a lot of interesting anecdotes and stories and concepts in here about the gold rush that I hadn't really considered. And one of the most helpful things that I found in your book about the gold rush was setting in a kind of global context. So mm-hmm. can you tell listeners how the gold rush 
changed the world, not just the United States, but had an impact worldwide? Well, there are various ways to various ways to to to, to consider that. Most obviously, this extraordinary outpouring of wealth. California, and then shortly thereafter, of course, remember, Australia had its first great gold rush. More gold was produced in California in 1852, the year 1852, than had been produced across the world in the entire 18th century. More gold was produced in California and Australia in five years, five or six years after that first gold rush, than had produced in the, that had been, that had been mined in the entire world. From the Columbian Land Vault of 1492 until until 1848, so this you know this this money poured not just in the United States but across the world. So you can find you can find its its impact on the on the economic economic history of Europe elsewhere in the world. But beyond that, it triggered a series of global gold rushes. First in Australia, then up north into into British British Columbia. And then, across, and then there's a, a recent book, a collection of essays on this uh, called Global, Global Gold Rushes that, that stresses this. And other historians uh, like Professor Nye at, at Columbia talks about the impact of the gold rush elsewhere. In this, in this case, on, on, on attitudes toward Chinese and the great Chinese diaspora. So it really does ripple out, ripple out across the world. Its most obvious, direct, and, and most lynching consequences are over in this country. But it is a truly global, a true global story. And I really love the reference that Karl Marx reconsidering his economic work after the gold rush and producing Das Kapital. That's that's a yeah. Well, uh, well, you know, you know, forty eight. Ian Engels came out with you know the famous essay. You, know, you have nothing to lose but your change and so forth. And and the same year, of course, gold is discovered in California. And he said, "Oh, wait a minute, got to rethink this." And the result of that was Das Kapital. Yeah. Yeah. In in chapter two, there's two concepts that I think would be fruitful for us to talk about. I mean, we could talk about them one at a time. The first one is the multiplier effect, which I thought was a really helpful thing to explain uh, California's rise. And then the second one was part of a, a triad of concepts, two of which I've talked about before, but the third I haven't really considered, which is California's isolation being explaining mm-hmm. its rise in some capacity. And I think those two things are related. Can you talk about both those concepts? Sure. What you find in, in California is something that you would never, you would never seen anything remotely like it on earlier frontiers, earlier areas of, of expansion. That is, in the first place, you see this, you know, to back up a bit, what I call the great coincidence is the fact that within about roughly 200 hours, 200 hours, think of this now, the United States acquired California in the Southwest with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and you know, James Marshall discovers that fleck of gold in the American River in California. So, you know, within nine days, the United States acquires California and California begins to be revealed as arguably the, you know, the most promising, the richest real estate on earth. So what this does is immediately trigger this massive migration to California. So point number one, you have lots and lots and lots of people showing up at this place. Number two, they are in desperate need of all kinds of things, starting with food. And number three, the point that you're pointing out, this is in this is extraordinarily isolated from the rest of the world, but also certainly from the major sources of support in the United States and the East. You know, try to as I you know I ask people, the readers in the book, to to imagine uh, James Polk. At the moment, you know, that the, the California is acquired. He's sitting sitting around sipping whiskey in the sitting whiskey in the the White House. And um, and he asked himself, looking at a map, 
right? And he asked himself, where is the farthest possible place from newly expanded nation? And if he thought a minute, he would have put his finger down you know, on California, which is also now you know, the place that's going to be increasing greatest in population and is the most valuable. So what that that what that isolation, the implications of that isolation is these people of California, they're all, they're tens of thousands of them now, hundreds of thousands of them. They're all needing a lot of stuff, but they are, you know, what Rod Paul put it years ago, California basically was what it was originally imagined as by those first cartographers, that it was an island, you know, just stuck out there by itself. The implications of that were, that's the multiplication. That is, they had to begin from the beginning. They had to make a great effort to provide all this for themselves. So the economic development, agricultural and pretty soon the industrial development of California was kicked into kicked into action far earlier than it would have been would have been otherwise. And so it had to provide for its own, and then it began to provide for itself. It began to provide for its own needs, and it, as a consequence, it emerges as a uh, as a, as a well as a, a developed modern economy far more rapidly than it would have otherwise. And we can kind of contrast that, right, with some of the gold rushes that happened on the East Coast, much in smaller scale, but they didn't, sure. you didn't have these emergent societies that come out of them because people just came in, stripped what they could get out, and then left, right? And went home. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's let's talk now about, let's talk about railroads. Why were they so important, but yet constantly in financial trouble? <laughs> well, we need to talk most of all. Richard White about that. I'm sure you've you, you've seen his his book Railroaded. Uh, yeah, he spent many hours explaining to me of the economics. <laughs> it is it is it is totally totally baffling. Of course, I think that, as he points out, roads at the, at the outset, the transcontinentals when they were built at the outset were far more important on either end than they than they were in the middle. Once they began to develop, however, once they began, once the interior of the West began to develop, the railroads became these uh, these great lifelines, and they and they in turn inspired feeder lines that led into them. Those in turn inspired new roads that, 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 that tapped into the feeder lines that tapped into the railroads. So what you see quite quickly is this is this great web of movement across the interior West. And again, let me emphasize: this would not have happened had it not been for the California Gold Rush. This this this, this uh, sudden this this there was a sudden passion on the part of the, of the American people in the East to, to connect to that part of the world, and that's what began this uh, this remarkable this remarkable filling in of the interior. Mm. And I I really enjoyed some of your sections of the book where you're describing what it was like before there were railroads to get to California, and <laughs> I I don't think I would have gotten on the boat to Nicaragua. Would you have? <laughs> Well, you know, it's one of the great undertold stories of this whole period. We all were so mesmerized, so caught up in the uh, the fascinating story of the overland migration of these families picking up and you know, piling into these little converted farm wagons and making their way 2,000, 1,500 miles across the interior. But, you know, more people traveled to California from the from the east via via Panama in the, in the sea than they did going overland. And that stretch across before the railroad. The first transcontinental railroad was across Panama. Before the railroad in Panama, you know, making their way through Nicaragua and through Panama to the Pacific, that was quite a story. Yeah, and I think it's one that we need to pay more attention to. And I think you you also dispel some myths around. When I was a kid, I played one of the early video games, Oregon Trail, on my computer, 
And, you know, you're just out there by yourself, your lone little wagon crossing this kind of beautiful, scenic, idyllic West. (laughs) Great, you know, to use a term that John McPhee uses, basin and range. But instead, what you describe, the 405 at five o'clock in Los Angeles (laughs) and of trash alongside the road. That's Um, right. Yeah. Why, why, why are our perceptions of the Oregon Trail so misguided? Because I think we need to, we need to think of it like that. You know, we, we're, we're, we're caught up in this idea of individualistic families on their own, you know, making their way out there, facing all kinds of, all kinds of dangers, which weren't there. You know, there was no threat, virtually no threat from Indian peoples. There were no threats from wild animals. So the threats were, the problems that they faced were the fact that they were crowding together this place that was, you know, that was in many ways with a denser population than the Lower East Side of Manhattan in, in, the, in the 19th century. You know, the garbage, the filth, the waste, the disease, you know, that was, this, it was this, this great corridor of infection. People from all over the country and the world were bringing all of their, all of their, all of their, all of their, all of their diseases and maladies and crowding together in this place where they're all using the same water. They're all camping next door to each other. You know, it was a mess. You know, I don't think I would have enjoyed it. No. And I, I, I appreciate the, the, that, that these settlers brought the problems with them, that they weren't there, but they created them in, in many ways by how they approached it. Um, right. Let's, let's, Pivot to two more sections in the book before we close up. Let's. I want to talk about the chapter: crew cultures, cribs, and schoolhouses. Women on the fringe. Why did you choose to focus on men in that chapter? Well, the obvious answer, first of all, is that the West was very heavily on earlier frontiers because most earlier earlier frontiers were, were agrarian. You know, these were family frontiers. They came. They came as a family. They came and they tended to stay. Because of the movement revolution that I mentioned earlier, it was after, you know, especially after 1865, you know, it was suddenly possible to go out west as a sojourn, you know, to, to head out there and, and never intending to stay or intending perhaps to get established and then send for your family or going out there to, and go back home. It was a sort of a come and go society and culture, unlike those earlier, unlike the earlier ones. Furthermore, because this was happening during you know, the transition of the United States into an industrial society, industrial uh, economy, the work to be done out there was men's work. That's what uh, crew cultures, it's the, the historian James above of Oxford says, this is a colonial phenomenon, what you see across the world and the making of empires. And this was in part the making of an American empire are these what he calls colonial shock troops, groups of men who are going out there and doing these, doing these kinds of labors. So there was a need for labor, men's labor. There was a way for men to go out there individually rather than leaving their families. So consequently, you know, the, the percentage of, of men in, in the West was far higher, far higher than in the East. So that's the obvious reason. The second, but also, as I say in that chapter, the role of women was precisely because they were often in a minority. The role of women out West was, was extremely important, important as well. Filling the kinds of roles that men had relied on women to perform for themselves back east, you know, they suddenly find themselves out there living on their own, having to cook their own food and, and wash their own clothes and so forth. And so this this created this need for women's labor out there. Women played these crucial roles in the West's desire to sort of become respectable, you know, to 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 attain that that image of a respectable society that was that they were trying to, to fit fit the needs fit the patterns of the East. 
so women playing roles of, of school moms, you know, and founding churches and so forth. So yeah. I try to find a balance between those two. Yeah. Well, and I think if if there was Yelp back in back then, the, some of those mining camps would have one star on their on their restaurant <laughs> reviews. I'm sure the food was absolutely terrible. Pretty um, awesome. Pretty awesome. Let's yeah. let's kind of set a bigger picture though and talk about the relationship of the United States to Asia. Without the gold rush, do you think the U.S. would have pivoted to the Pacific as hard as it did in the 19th century? No, no, no way. It would have happened, of course. We were on the Pacific, and naturally, that's go- there was going to develop an increasing context. But what you find, again, again, with this remarkable coincidence of gold, were the very moment that we, or that we found ourselves on the Pacific. And not only were we on the Pacific, now California and San Francisco, you know, became suddenly, you know, the focus of this, of this extraordinary Pacific trade that had been developing over the past couple of couple of generations. So. Almost overnight, San Francisco became one of the busiest ports in the world. And the United States, in turn, began to begin to face outward. You mentioned before this, this multiplier effect, the fact that California's, in this case, agriculture developed early and, and on such a scale. Within a few years, within a few years, this agricultural production began to turn outward. You know, it, had, it had met the demands in California, so they began to ex- export foodstuffs ar- around the Pacific. The great forests of the Northwest began to be uh, shipped outward. And, of course, they, just a couple of years after the gold rush is uh, Commodore Perry's opening of, of trade to Japan. And if you read the president's greeting to the emperor of Japan, uh, after the sort of boilerplate, how you doing, nice to meet you stuff, he, the first thing he talks about is the gold rush. And how this is this, this, this opens a, a natural connection between the United States and Japan, which of course have been cl- closed off for generations before that. So I think that without without question, our turn into the Pacific world and toward Asia in far more or earlier than it would have, except for the gold rush. We're going to close with book recommendations, which is my favorite section. We've mentioned a lot of books and scholars in passing, but I like to in- encourage my guests to point listeners to particular books that you think are important that maybe aren't on the tip of their tongue or their mind. Mm-hmm. What are two or three books you'd recommend in particular? Well, I was thinking thinking about that question, and I looked I looked at some of your previous podcasts, and I would there are two or three on there that I would, that I would mention right away. Kevin Waite's book, Western Slavery. It's, it's a wonderful book. It's a beautifully argued and, and well-written. Kevin, Kevin and I disagree fundamentally on, on some of the points in that book, and we've had some wonderful disagreements and discussions discussions on that. But it's certainly a book, book, book worth reading. You have my good friend Richard White's a book, Who Killed Jane Stanford, which is just a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> just, <Yeah. laughs> like, like all of Richard's work, a very, very smart, uh, beautifully written, just a great sort of whodunit. In this case, a true crime. You mentioned Pekka Hamelainen's book, Indigenous Indigenous Content. I think it's 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 some some stirring up some controversy, and that's that's well to, that's all to the good, of course. So I would certainly I would certainly recommend that. The book is not out yet by Ned Blackhawk. Uh, that's also a, a sort of indigenous history of of America uh, of the United States. I think I'm, I'm looking forward uh, greatly greatly to reading. So those are some of the ones that, that come that come first to mind. Okay. And what are you working on these days? Well, I'm retired. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've enjoyed that. My, I've retired a year ago, my wife, or a month ago. So uh, the two of us are just uh, just beginning to look into what else the world might offer us besides that. 
Besides that, I've got some um, I've got some smaller projects that I'm that I'm interested in. I'm increasingly interested in the history of science in the West. I think I might try to do something on that. But beyond that, I'm not entirely sure. I'm sort of taking a rest. You know, this this book just came out. It took a long time, and I want to sort of take take a breather and think about what I want to do next. Wonderful. Well, thank you for talking with me. You're quite welcome. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.